The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So if you haven't been coming, I've been uh, covering the ten paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart. And uh, just in terms of the mythology or legends, stories of from the from Buddhism, really, a lot of these stories, of course, arose over the centuries after the time of the Buddha, but they're, they're kind of good teaching stories. So one of the stories is that the ten paramis are the qualities that the Buddha developed through countless lifetimes, sort of attributes of his personality that really set the stage or the ground for awakening. And I like that idea, like that we're just cultivating a garden of qualities of heart and mind that um, in a way give us resilience and immunity from toxic, difficult states and also set up the kind of safety and stability that allows the heart to wake up, to see what it isn't seeing. You know, the, the very definition of ignorance, the cause for suffering, is not seeing. Our Buddha said once, it's the not seeing suffering, not understanding suffering as it is, that's the cause for suffering. And that's actually, it's not like theoretical, like when we're suffering, it's really helpful like to remember that teaching. Okay, I'm pretty clear that I'm suffering now. And according to this wise person, the suffering that I'm experiencing here and now is because I don't understand the suffering I'm experiencing here and now. See how it evokes a humility and a curiosity. Well, what am I not, what's here that I'm not feeling and seeing clearly? What's moving in me, around me, in the moments that's not being clearly acknowledged? Ajahn Sumedho, one of my teachers and uh, just one of our great elders in the early Buddhist tradition here in the West. He's an American, but uh, he practiced with Ajahn Chah in Thailand for a while and then uh, was for many decades the abbot of a well-known monastery in England, Amaravati. Now he's sort of retired, not that monks, Buddhist monks really retire, but he's not doesn't have administrative duties anymore. He's in his mid to late 80s, so he's quite old. But this, he said this a long time ago. He said, the sensory realm, that's you know the ordinary worldly experience that we have, the sensory realm is a restless realm. Bodies are restless, minds are restless, conditions are changing all the time. If you are caught up in reacting to change, you're just restless. And I like this because it kind of sets up the dilemma we have as a human being, like how to be in this restless realm of existence, where we, like when we sat tonight and we feel the body, the body of course is alive with sensation. Did it ever stop, that movement? You know, whether it's gross sensations in the body or more subtle 
refined sensations, regardless, they're always moving sensations. Did your mind stop thinking? Did emotions stop? No. Did sound stop? Even with our eyes closed, did visual experience stop? So this is kind of the very nature of what we call the world, or the world of experience may be more accurate, right? We're constantly, the sensitive heart-mind is constantly impinged, being touched through these six sense gates, the five physical senses through sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches, but we're also, the sensitivity is also touched by mental activity, right? I know mental activity not so differently than how I know sound or sight or smell or taste or touch. And these six things are restless, they're always in motion. So the question, you know, for all of us human beings in this restless realm with these six things happening is, what's the skillful, the appropriate way to relate to the restlessness of experience, the ongoingness, the ceaselessness of sense experience never ends. Even at night, there's activity you know, in the mind. You ever wake up and go like, that was an exhausting dream. <laughs> you know, whatever we did in the dream or whatever happened in the dream. It just goes on and on. So one response, and it's not like these paramis are really separate, they're really overlapping understandings or perspectives on being skillful. Whether we talk about generosity or patience or next week, truthfulness and resoluteness and renunciation and wisdom and kindness and equanimity and persistence. That's most of the ten, I might have missed one, that we're covering in these weeks. We started somewhere early in the summer. And of course, they're all recorded, so if you haven't been coming, you want to hear about some of the early, earlier qualities that we covered, you can just catch the recordings on the YouTube channel or uh, dharmaseed.org. But they're all sort of uh, pointing to a heart, a mind that's in alignment, not out of alignment. And I especially like patience, and the Buddha made a big deal of patience too, because it, it really teaches us how to come into alignment. And it's not that patience implies that we stop making effort or that we stop doing. It's really, in a way, the main ingredient for skillful action, both in terms of like subtle meditative action, like how we do our practice, but also big action out in the world, choices that we make. So I've been talking about uh, as it is in the tradition, it's divided into three, I guess you could say, expressions of patience. One is uh, sometimes talked about as a gentle forbearance or um, a soft perseverance, a steadfastness. Because you know how it is in life, 
the more we live life with awareness, we can't help but learn a thing or two about what's skillful and what's not so skillful, ways of relating that are helpful, ways of me relating that are not so helpful. And so this gentle persistence, this soft forbearance, it's really like sticking to what life has taught us. So if we like catch ourselves, as I have many times, being unnecessarily controlling with my spouse, and just feeling how off that is, how unhelpful that is to me, let alone to my partner. You know, so then it exists in my heart, like the reverberation of seeing myself being unskillful many times, then it appropriately, it starts to reverberate in our hearts as a kind of wholesome concern. Honey, don't do that. That's not helpful, right? That sort of, in kind of normal English, we'd, we'd say something like the voice of conscience. In Buddhism, it's hiri oktapa, this sort of, uh, it's a kind of earthy wisdom that knows the difference between what's helpful and skillful and what's not helpful and not skillful. And the first sort of uh, expression of patience is just like, are we walking our talk? So to whatever degree we have some clarity about what's skillful and unskillful, are we willing to activate that capacity to refrain from what the heart, that earthy wisdom says, oh, I, don't, I don't really trust what you're about to think or say or do, you know. Maybe you should refrain, maybe you should hold back here, maybe you should pause until a more, what feels more wholesome response shows up in your imagination and then maybe do that instead. So that, that's part of patience, that ability, like, yeah, I do know a thing or two about what's skillful and not skillful. And when I'm not clear, clear I know how to wait until some clarity comes in. Because a lot of times, like in a, in a dynamic at work or with family or wherever, you know, a lot of stuff is getting kicked up. So a lot of different patterns, emotional, psychological patterns might have gotten triggered and they're triggered and they're triggering, makes us triggered and it's not so easy to get the lay of the land, what's moving, right? So part of this initial kind of patience, this forbearance, is to hang out and to be okay in that ambiguity, like, I don't know much, but I do know that there's no clarity right now, right? That's something, that's actually not nothing, that's, that's important to know, oh yeah, there's this scene, you know, Thanksgiving, or family gets together, or hanging out with friends, or just with your own mind at home alone. And there's some storm, some drama, for whatever reasons, there, and the first step might be realizing, honestly, I don't know. I don't understand what's moving, what's happening. But that's okay, because I know how to be patient. And that's that gentle forbearance. Like, It's not like distancing ourselves, it's actually allowing that forbearance. 
It allows us to settle and feel and comprehend better over time. Right? That's the point of patience, right? It, in a funny way, it buys time. Because I don't, I'm not expecting myself to have an answer. That, that wise forbearance, it sort of, it is the wise answer. This is the wise response. Gentle forbearance. Hang in there, hang in there, hang in there, even if it's minutes and hours, hang in there, because more comprehension, more understanding will happen. As long as we're feeling into the moment, right? what that wise mindfulness does is, it's like, it's the very definition of wisdom. Wisdom comprehends causes, cause and effect. So when we're in that gentle forbearance, hanging out, knowing that we don't know, wisdom is quite active, sort of reading cause and effect. Like even if I have an impulse in that place of perseverance and ambiguity and not acting out, but I feel this impulse, I feel this impulse, that inclination, that tendency, each time, you know, oh yeah, I'm going to get even with that person. I'm going to, finally, once and for all, I'm going to fix myself, you know. And we sit, and then we get a little taste, oh yeah, that, that's not that helpful. But after a while, after, you know, 20 or 30 or 10 hundred impulses, there might be some really skillful impulse. And it might even be, if we're fortunate, the first impulse might have been quite skillful, who knows? But we just keep feeling and sensing and intuiting. It's almost like over time we get pretty good when we're patient and relaxed and curious. We get really good at intuiting the moral, I know that's sort of a, a word that pushes our buttons a little bit, but it's actually the accurate word, the moral quality of the intention in my heart the motivation, like, that doesn't feel skillful, or that feels pretty trustworthy, that motivation. It's wholesome, as best I can tell. We never pretend to be certain, so even when we feel like that impulse feels like it's coming from a wholesome motivation, a wholesome intention to take care of my well-being and the well-being of whoever else might be involved, we don't pretend to be certain because if we do pretend to be certain, then we stop paying attention. But when we have the sense it's wholesome, but we know we're not certain, we start to let that motivation move into thought and word and action. But we continue to observe, to be present, to see, oh yeah, oh yeah, this was, this is, it really does feel wholesome, or, oh, I, I kind of misread this. I was sort of lying to myself, now I realize it. And then we pull out that patient forbearance. I guess I still don't know what to do here. And this is kind of an interesting place in life. I think the more we practice, the more wise we become, the more places in our life, in our relationships, in our responsibilities are ambiguous and uncertain. Have you? feeling as you've gotten older and wiser that actually there's more of that uncertainty. I think it's a good sign. And so often, you know, as a human being that really has an active spiritual life, it's like, well, where now in this moment is there some certainty? 
I feel pretty certain about emptying the compost. It's been there for over a week, starting to stink. It's not that morally complex, right? I'm going to tie the bag. I'm going to carefully place it in the compost. I'm going to rinse it out. I'm going to dry it out. I'm going to put a new bag in. That feels... And, and because the motivation to do that seems clean and trustworthy, we do it. So we don't have to resolve all the things. And isn't it really a sign of wisdom and I think liberation that we're okay with some things being unresolved? When should I retire? I don't know. Should I retire? What does that even mean? You know? How much money should I give to charity and how much should I save? I don't know. So we hold these things in that space. Like I'm patient with the not knowing and I'm feeling into it and I experiment. Well, let me give here and I'll notice what that feels like and I'll examine that. Or let me refrain from giving here and I'll knowing that I don't know, I'll continue to feel into that. Like, how did that feel not giving when I was being asked? Oh, okay, that's interesting. Is that stinginess? Or is it self-care? Or is it a mixture? Well, let me see. So anyway, that's one, in a way, one-third of our training in um, patience is this place where we're learning to walk our talk, like the values, what we've come to understand is skillful, what we've come to understand is unskillful, and then living in accordance. And a lot of that, like I've been talking about, is when we're not clear, that's okay, because we can we be patient in these places. And of course, sometimes we have to, it seems like, you know, a choice has to be made, but that's okay. Then, in that case, we'll make a choice with the best understanding we have in that moment, but we don't pretend to be certain. We know that we don't know. Maybe in this particular place, we don't have a choice to be in that pause, so we do. We make a choice. The second place, and I talked about this two weeks ago, I think, is... Uh, Patience with difficult emotions, difficult pain, chronic pain. And this is a very interesting place because I'm sure you're discovering there's a lot of physical and emotional pain. So the first thing we want to do, and it really lines up with this kind of patient endurance with what's difficult, this aspect of patience, is to normalize. Like, and you will see, like, when we catch ourselves thinking that my pain, emotional or physical, is unique to me, then it, it really sets the heart up for spinning some self-centered drama. But if we generalize it, if we normalize it, if we notice, no, no, life isn't difficult for me, it's difficult for all of us. And whatever sort of unique emotional, psychological, or physical pain that I experience, there are countless people with something in the same ballpark. Of course it will be different for them, but it will be more the same than it is different, right? And we can get good at seeing that, because if we're, if, you know, if the mind, because of bad habits, 
is invested in the uniqueness and specialness of my suffering, because it's juicy that way, of course, then there are consequences to that. So if we're really going to learn how to be patient with this part of life that is painful, it, we really need to see how ordinary it is. Oh yeah. All you have to do is hang out with older people. Now I'm one of those older people. I'm in my 60s. You know, and we talk a lot about bodily pain. <laughs> and it just keeps increasing, it seems as the years go by. You know, not increasing, um, I think bodily pain probably increases, but what definitely increases is how we talk about it. It's sort of the topic over coffee and tea, and it's sort of what we lead with, you know. How are you doing? Oh, I had a bad fall, you know. Or, <laughs> yeah, I had this, and my throat hurts, and... This is from, uh, some of you might have heard of Shanti Deva. He's kind of a pretty famous person, Buddhist monk in the Buddhist tradition. He lived back, I think, around the 9th century in northern India. And he's mostly famous for this text that he wrote, The Way of the Bodhisattva, or uh, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, I think it's how it's translated. Bodhisattva means someone on the way to awakening or someone dedicated to the awakening of all beings. That's kind of a later school, but you know he's kind of part of a later Buddhist tradition. So someone dedicated to, you know, with compassion to being there to support the awakening of all beings. So it's just interesting because he has a little section in that book or that text on patience and he says, Whatever wholesome deeds, such as venerating the wise ones and generosity that have been amassed over a thousand eons, will be destroyed in one moment of anger or impatience. And it's true, you know, a lot of uh, the leaders that come ground have volunteered to teach in prisons. I don't know if anybody here has, but, oh yeah. And, uh, one of the things that we know, people who've done that work, is like a lot of those people are like a lot of these people here, except there was a moment, you know, where anger or some other strong emotion arose at the wrong time in the wrong place. The absence of wisdom to see that strong emotion, so the emotion had sort of the run of the place, the body and the mind followed the strong emotion, did something, got caught, and they end up being incarcerated. And then the other people might have, you know, like those of us here in the room, we might have a similar emotion, but luckily it happened in the right place, in a better place, where, you know, and in the context of a heart and mind with more resilience and more understanding or whatever. So this is the thing about like one moment of anger at the wrong time in the wrong place can really get in the way of a lot of good that had been there. And he can, continues here the verse, There is no evil like hatred and no fortitude like patience. Thus I should strive in various ways to meditate on patience. Now here meditate on patience really means keeping it in mind. 
that for all of the wholesome qualities that we've been studying, it's just about keeping it in mind, like to actually sincerely be curious about patience as you, when you're driving, oh, I wonder what patience looks like now. Were you listening to Mark's talk? What would patience look like now? That sort of soft forbearance, that endurance of what is unpleasant, that alignment with truth. This is the third that I'll get to in a moment. There's a little bit more here I wanted to read. My mind will not experience peace if it fosters painful thoughts of hatred. I shall find no joy or happiness. Unable to sleep, I shall feel unsettled. I'm going to skip a little bit. And this is something you might have heard the Dalai Lama, he's, he often repeats this uh, teaching from Shantideva. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? And he ends this little section. The causes of happiness sometimes occur, but the causes for suffering are very many. Without suffering, there is no renunciation. Therefore, mind, you should stand firm. There is nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. So, through becoming acquainted with small harms, I should learn to patiently accept greater harms. Sure, I could go get a sweater. But what an interesting little teaching for me right here to feel cold and just to learn to patiently endure the chill that I'm feeling. Not that it would be wrong to go get a sweater. Or more to the point of sitting meditation, you know, I feel the impulse to move. There's nothing uh, unskillful about moving the body, you know, or scratching an itch or whatever. But why not, with these little difficulties, why not creatively experiment with patience? Oh, well, what is it like to refrain from scratching that itch or adjusting the spine or whatever, just to be at ease with the conditions, to patiently endure this impulse or this unpleasantness. Who has not seen this is to be so with trifling sufferings, such as the bites of snakes and insects, feelings of hunger and thirst, and with such minor things as rashes. (laughs) I should not be impatient with heat or cold, wind or rain, sickness, bondage, and beatings. For if I am, the harm they cause me will increase. Yeah, so just keep that in mind, you know, as you... um, It's like a a liberating strength or power, this capacity for patience. And like even uh, difficult things at work, like having to sit through boring meetings or something. Like, if you're going to be there anyway, then really develop the quality of patience. There's a, uh, I mentioned Ajahn Sumedho, one thing he tells, it's just, he tells it in such a funny way, but, you know, he was uh, in Thailand as a monk for 10 years before he moved back to the West. <coughs> and uh, 
In his early years, he didn't speak Thai. So he'd be in a monastery in northeast Thailand, and it was sort of this different dialect anyway, sort of a combination of Laotian and Thai, evidently. And uh, his teacher was really on a roll in those days, Ajahn Chah, a very famous Thai meditation master and Buddhist monk. And he would give like three-hour Dharma talks most evenings, you know, because he was pretty popular with the lay communities and people would gather and then all the other monks in the monastery were sort of expected just to sit there you know they'd sort of sit next to the main teacher in perfect you know samadhi pose and uh, and he just was getting more and more angry because it was so frustrating to sit there he couldn't understand what the guy was saying and uh, and Ajahn Chah was evidently uh I mean, I've read and heard, actually heard some of his uh, recorded talks, but uh, very charismatic and well-loved and funny and earthy. So the lay people, like everyone was really enjoying it, and he was oblivious because he didn't speak the language, and more and more frustrated. And then just before he was just like to burst with rage, which would have, of course, been totally inappropriate, Ajahn Chah would just look at him with so much love and a little smile, kind of a knowing smile, because he totally got where he was at, and just smiled at him, and then it would melt, and then he'd just feel like, what was that anger all about, that impatience all about? And then, so that happened enough times that he finally just realized, this is my teacher. Not what he's saying, because I don't get that, but just like learning to patiently endure. I mean, it seems so like you go all the way to Thailand, to learn how to patiently endure kind of frustrating things. But it's just that, you know, we, we think of the deeper teachings as seeing through self-centeredness, right? Like seeing that the sense of self is a construction. But this is a perfect laboratory to see that. Like if you have a long commute most days and there's traffic, then turn it into a teacher. So then when you you see that sense of self arise, this is not okay. You know, then it's like this ability to, oh no, no, I, I've resolved that sometimes traffic is like this. I'm not surprised anymore when there's traffic. And I'm using this to see all of those reactions as empty of self. Oh yeah, that's just that. Oh yeah, that's just that. And it doesn't mean we become some sort of passive doormat. It's really understanding that this non-fear with the moment, because you know what, the moment is already this way, really allows for skillful action if there is something to do. And if there's nothing to do, there's nothing to do. But if there, if there is something to do, do it. But in any case, why get tight? If there's something to do, do it. If there's nothing to do right now, there's nothing to do right now. But why be tight? Why be angry? Why be impatient? This is from one of my important teachers, uh, Joseph Goldstein. This is quite dated, this book. I mean, not dated, but old. Insight Meditation, but it's an excellent book. Um, he has a more recent book that's also quite good that has mindfulness as the main title, but insight meditation is also just a great manual of our practice. 
And this is the chapter, it's called How to Practice. And here's Joseph talking about the balance between effort and patience. So he writes, Without the fire of effort, nothing happens. We simply live out and act out all the old habit patterns of our conditioning. It's extremely difficult to step outside of those patterns to discern in a clear and fresh way what is actually occurring and to make choices based on wisdom rather than on reactive conditioning. But effort alone is not enough. Valuable as this quality is, it can also lead us astray if it is overdeveloped. And he goes on, I'm skipping a bit. Recognizing, often through painful personal experience, the difficulties that come from such a striving, expecting mind, right, over-efforting. Many people discard the notion of a goal altogether, but this is also a mistake. If we abandon a sense of goal and become attached to the idea that practice is simply becoming aware and mindful in the moment, without any sense of destination, development, or deepening realization, then we lose a source of tremendous energy and inspiration. The critical balance we need to discover in meditation practice, and indeed in all aspects of our life, is the equipoise between effort and surrender. On the surface, these two qualities seem to contradict each other. How can we make effort be purposeful and at the same time surrender to what is happening, to the natural unfolding of our experience. Grasping this paradox is a decisive turning point in coming to understand the whole spiritual journey. Because it clearly, like to live a spiritual life, to really transform our heart, it clearly takes effort, no doubt about it. But the effort has to be wise effort. It definitely doesn't require a blunt effort, or rarely does it require a blunt effort. It's really, I mean, to, to sort of sum it up, it's really the effort to understand, not so much the effort to do or even to become. And he's going to say a few more things, two, two more short paragraphs. Surrender does not mean passive resignation, Rather, it means surrender to the Dharma, to the truth of the moment's experience. Such acceptance enables us to make effort to arouse energy, but without agitation or grasping. We have a sense of spiritual urgency while at the same time we soften and surrender to just what is happening in this moment, and then this, and then the next. In the early years of my meditation practice, I would cultivate this quality of surrendering by reminding myself that my job on retreat was simply to sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk. Right? Generally, when you're on retreat for a long time, you'd sit as long as you're comfortable to sit. 30 minutes, two hours, just kind of depends, even longer sometimes. And then you'd walk for about an hour, do walking meditation. Then you'd sit as long as you're comfortable sitting then you'd walk. Basically like that, you'd have your meals, go to bed at night, you wake up after, you know, four to six hours or something like that, and you do it again. So that's what Joseph's talking about. By upholding my side of the effort in this simple way, I was then able to surrender to all the ups and downs of practice. There are times that were smooth, easy, and wonderful, 
and there were times that were full of pain and difficulty. I just kept sitting and walking, sitting and walking, and the Dharma continued to unfold. And that's really the key. You know, it's sort of like we're not saying we're not going to act, but we're just leading with that patient presence. And so this third, so there's that gentle forbearance, that endurance of what's painful. And the third expression of uh, patience is really this alignment with the truth. It's kind of the, the essence of patience is aligning with the truth. And in Buddhism, we often think of the truth of the way it is as the underlying truth, not so much the surface truth, oh yeah, I'm seeing black cushions, I'm hearing the sound of my own voice, I'm feeling the cool breeze from the windows above me. That's sort of the surface level of my experience. But the underlying truth that's more it's not specific to any one experience, but it's more universally true of all my experiences right now, is that everything is in flux. So even my visual experience, if I'm really stable and sensitive, even the visual experience is alive with change. Sound, sensation, everything's like a river, changing river, thought, have you noticed your thoughts are like a river and never ends? More verbiage, spewing. Maybe it's like a waterfall. <laughs> and even emotionality, just the movement of feeling tone and other kinds of emotions, just flowing, flowing, never ending. That, like I talked about at the beginning, the Ajahn Sumedho's comment about this being a restless realm, right? So, patient patient acceptance of the truth means we have that stability, that curiosity, and that <clears throat> sort of interest in aligning, oh yeah, things are changing, things are moving, things are impermanent, they're uncertain, they can't be grasped, it's unsatisfactory, I can't get I can't own some kind of ground in my life because it's always the ground is shifting and moving, everything, whatever. It's only when we pretend, you know, and we tell ourselves a story. I got my, my SHIT together now, and, uh, you know, I, I got my partner, and I got this, and I got that, got a new car. My life is to get, you know, so that story has, can create a semblance of solidity. Like, but that story is just a story. None of those things that the story points to is solid or reliable or governable in our control, any, in anybody's control. It all changes. I don't know if you noticed, I live in the neighborhood, but just those storms in the last uh, early, late August and early September, there were a number of trees that fell down, and they seemed to fall, every single one that I saw fell on cars. So there's several cars, I think three that I saw real close to where I live, which is just seven blocks to the east, 
got smashed. I don't know if anybody else noticed those cars. One was sort of by the Seward Co-op and two were just at the end of the block, right next, uh, just a little bit away from the Birchwood uh, Cafe. But you know, you don't go to bed at night thinking a big tree's gonna fall on your nice car. And I mean, they got they really probably totaled, I don't know. They seem pretty damaged by the fall. So this is the thing, you know, we imagine solidity or permanence, like even relationships. Oh no, it's solid. Until it isn't. Or financial security or this or that. So patient acceptance with the truth is we have we develop less and less tolerance for superficiality and for the spell our stories can cast on our mind. I remember reading uh, something from a psychologist who, who uh, worked with couples, and he, he talked about, or I think it was a he, it could have been, forget who it was actually, but this person then spoke about how that, that moment of, with younger, or newer couples rather, just that, just knowing the spell of falling in love, being in love, like that, that's an ephemeral thing and that couples have to navigate, right? It doesn't mean that it's bad when you, that quality of being in love falls away because like everything else, it arises because of causes and conditions. One of the causes and conditions for that is that it's new. <laughs> that changes when it's no longer new. Right? So then it's something else. And to sort of know that that is going to go away when you're in that role as a psychologist or a therapist with a couple, you know, it's just how, uh, yeah, just that. Uh, and, and what comes from that, just the story, is like this um, spiritual wisdom that, you know what, even if it's a little heartbreaking, I really want to align with the truth of things. I don't, because what we find, you know, the longer we live and the more we practice, it's like, more than anything, I don't want to be surprised anymore. I want to live in a way where nothing surprises me. I don't want to be deluded because that moment of thinking that it was this way and then realizing it's another way, it's very disturbing because we realize that our wisdom lies. Because our wisdom says, I know, this is true, right? And then it, something else turns out to be true and then we mistrust ourselves. So this patience really helps us because it knows when we don't know and we're comfortable knowing that we don't know and there are places in life where we know that we know. Some things we're pretty clear about, like that things are changing, that in my life, nothing has provided lasting satisfaction. Anybody have something that is providing you an unshakable satisfaction? <laughs> yeah, but it also provides ceaseless frustration <laughs> for most of us. But it's okay because it feels like it's in the right direction. And of course, there is something that develops over time 
let's just call it letting go, that's pretty trustworthy. But we can't force letting go, the sort of dropping of attachment. But we can definitely appreciate when the conditions are there and the heart lets go, it's definitely worthy of appreciation. As opposed to thinking we have a, a thousand serious moves. I don't know if you know this poem. It's uh, based on one of Hadith's poems, who was a Persian uh, Sufi master uh, way back in the 13th century, a little bit in the same uh, uh, place as uh, Rumi uh, in terms of the Sufi mysticism, which is an aspect of Islam. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? Well, the saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game and that the beloved has made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out with laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. Yeah, and that's just such a good example about like uh, how stabilizing it is to have this alignment with the truth. It's not that we're grounding in what we know, but we're grounding in the underlying nature. Everything's changing. There's always a new chapter being written for my life. I don't know what it is, but I can participate in the next chapter by how I relate, how I understand. If I'm trying to manage and control it, it will be a chapter that involves a lot of suffering. If I allow nature and all the causes and conditions informing this life to co-author the chapter, it might have some grace and some ease. Right? But there's always another chapter, another sentence, another paragraph. So we don't have to fret if the first two paragraphs of the next chapter of our life is hellish. Because the next moment could be this really beautiful paragraph about acknowledging how hellish the last two paragraphs were. You know, and just shifting the awareness towards patience and understanding. I'll just end with a little section from Gil Kronsdahl and then open it up for conversation. If you don't know, Gil Kronsdahl is a wonderful teacher on the West Coast, um, Insight Meditation Center and Insight Retreat Center near Palo Alto and in, in uh, hills between the South Bay and Santa Cruz on the coast. That's where the retreat center is. But he has a lot of great stuff online you can check out his website or the center's website. And this is from an article on patience that Gil wrote. The third form of patience is acceptance of the truth. It is the willingness to see deeply without resistance the truth of the moment and the truth of the deepest levels of reality. This includes living in accord, in accord with the insight at our core. There is no self to build up hang on to, or defend. Seeing the luminous emptiness at the center of all things 
means that we can begin to let go of grasping to a self-conscious and fixed idea of who we are. This requires a kind of patience because deep spiritual insight is an affront to the ego. Most of us orient our lives around a limited view of ourselves. It can be quite frightening to let this view go. The patient acceptance of truth that allows us to let go is a personal strength developed together with the strengths of virtue, discernment, wisdom, resolve, and loving kindness. A little bit more here. The ultimate perfection of patience does not come from endurance or a reevaluation of a situation. Rather, it comes from the absence of our habitual, automatic triggers and reactive hooks to the challenges of life. Fully mature patience is effortless. It's not a doing at all. Once an angry man insulted the Buddha. The Buddha simply asked the man if people ever visited him in his home. Surprised at the change of topic, the man answered yes. The Buddha then asked if his visitors ever brought gifts. When the man replied yes again, the Buddha asked, what would happen if he refused to accept the gifts? Who would the gifts belong to then? The man said that, of course, they would still belong to those who brought them. The Buddha then calmly, and I imagine kindly said, in the same way, since I do not accept your insults, they remain with you. <laughs> since the ultimate patience is effortless, Perhaps the opposite of impatience is not patience, but rather contentment. By not chasing after the whims of the ego, we have the chance to discover deep contentment that manifests in our life as great patience. So I didn't leave too much time for discussion, but there is time to hear from a few folks. Any questions that you have about what I've said? Or even better, if you have any experiences of patients, any learnings that you want to share with the group, that's always nice to hear. Colette has the microphone pointed pretty close to your mouth so we can all hear you. Anybody like to share or ask a question? What have you learned about patients in your life? Remember, what patience does is it, it helps to support a skillful response. So like if we're around some kind of chaos or some kind of unskillfulness, and it really triggers my own need for control, like I do not want to live in a world where that happens, then my first impulse is really arising out of my own aversion to chaos. So if I have some patience, which is a kind of contentment, like Bill just said, or non-fear with what's going on in the moment, then that really creates that space so that I don't have to act on that first impulse. 
And then with a few moments, and it happens very quickly, right? I can see like, well, maybe there's something that needs to be done. Maybe I'm the right person to do that. But I don't have to do it, but I'm also not afraid to do it. So then the action isn't coming because of my aversion, but maybe because of compassion for the people that that person's action might affect. So the first thing we want to do, like the same thing if, uh, you know, if my partner, if my spouse, Wynne, who's the co-founder of Common Ground, one of our teachers, you know, if uh, she's hurting, sometimes I get averse. I mean, it's, I know it's insane, but that happens with partners. You know, we're, it's like our partner is suffering, and we don't like that our partner is suffering. It's not, that's not compassion, that's aversion. So, like, my initial response is like, let me fix you because your suffering is bothering me. Now, I'm more skillful. I generally don't say that. But I feel that impulse to, like, want to fix them. And now I'm learning to be patient, like, to, to be real with my own reactivity. Okay, this is what it feels like to live in a world that's chaotic, meaning I'm the person I care most about that's most close to me, you know, is having a difficult time. And because I'm empathetic, that's disturbing my peace. And I feel threatened, and it's like this. Can I patiently endure that? And that can happen just in an instant, or maybe it takes an hour, but whatever it is, it needs the time it needs. But when I'm clean, and I'm no longer afraid of her suffering, then I might actually be able to be helpful in, in doing whatever I can. Tucking her in, you know, whatever it might be. Because I'm, in a way, I've already taken care of myself. Yeah, thanks for that good comment. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.